Hello, I'm Ryan, one of the hosts of the About Practice podcast, a show about research and practice and education. This episode is part two of a two-part interview with Dr. G. Sun, professor of psychology at California State University in Los Angeles. If you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and pause it right now and use the link in the show notes to check it out. In this episode, we dive into important topics like why G is so passionate about her approach to research and also the importance of being a realist when it comes to trying new things. Check out Introduction to Statistics and Data Science, a modeling approach, which is an interactive book that G wrote. You can find that on coursekata.org. And also keep an eye out for an anthology that G contributed to called Power Women, Stories of Motherhood, Faith, and the Academy that'll be out in October of this year and is available now for pre-order on Amazon. And again, I'm so stoked that I get to say this for a second time. I've always wanted to. This episode of About Practice contains the occasional use of potty language. Nothing too bad, but just letting you know. And now enjoy part two of our interview with Dr. G. Sun. Just also to flag for all of our legions of readers and um, listeners, sorry, and um, and maybe for the Discord uh, channel. Just kidding, that doesn't exist yet. Um, um, I'm starting it right Dr. now. Dr. Frances Harper, I think, was talking about similar ideas, where she was talking about complex instruction and kind of focusing mathematics around learning about kind of um, how to reason about numbers kind of flexibly and not to kind of engage in rote procedure. And she also mentioned how there are also disparities in kind of for whom those different instructional opportunities are provided. But back to science ed real quick. Sorry, long question, G, if you don't mind. Thank you. Um, I feel like there's this kind of narrative of something like kids engage in science and engineering practices to make sense of disciplinary core ideas and to draw on and also make sense of the cross-cutting concepts. Maybe that's a little bit of a naive take, but that's kind of the narrative that I, I, I feel like I re, not feel like I do read things like sentences like that in papers. I may have written sentences similar to that myself. <laughs> and that's a little different because connections aren't showing up there. Instead, it's about like the, the the science and engineering practices, which I think do have some of that, one of the elements you've talked about, and we've mm-hmm. talked about the kind of connections between the idea and the world. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not hearing in my own talk <laughs> about I, what something that I, it strikes me and I'm, I'm persuaded is, strikes me as, and I'm persuaded by the paper as that this is important, this idea of making connections. You said if, if there's, one thing this paper is about, it's I can say it in three words, it's practice making connections. And that doesn't seem to be kind of shining through in, in my description of what we're focused on in science education right now. Can you help me to talk? Can you talk me through that? Oh, I, totally. I guess I'm just looking for, okay, <laughs> great. I mean, to me, I when I read the NGSS core concepts, I was like, oh my God, I love this. I, I genuinely love this. But at the same time, I was like, oh, nobody's going to do anything with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Like, <laughs> we don't know how. I, I think we need to yeah, read the paper. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea how, right? I mean, my, you can't I have some colleagues who do. I don't, want, I don't want to diminish yeah. any of my science and scholars. But yeah, I think broadly we don't. Sorry, G, I'll, 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 I'm listening. <laughs> no, like, I mean, I think, I think that's, that's the feeling that we all had because we've been around the block, man. Like we're realists. First things first, I'm a realist, right? Mm -hmm. Like we want real teachers to make a real difference in how they're doing stuff in their classes, right? We don't just want to write papers, but here's how we think about it in that practicing connections framework. 
everything has to be in some sort of realistic practice that you're doing. For us in statistics, it's the practice of doing data analysis. But in science or engineering, it's a slightly different practice. It's a little bit modified, right? Um, in engineering, it might be uh, to, to accomplish some goal with a certain amount of mat raw materials or whatever to maximize some return. I don't know, right? And and so you have some genuine practice that they're engaged in, but as they're doing the practice, they're never gonna discover the core concepts. Like that's the thing, those core concepts took centuries to discover. They're not gonna discover it, right? But while they are doing the practice, they're gonna see, hey, this core concept of measurement comes up again and again and again. Well, this core concept of scale, it comes up again and again. And this core concept of systems comes up again and again. And it has to be in slightly different, and you actually can't learn about scale by just doing one like engineering process, like project kind of thing. You actually have to do multiple practices in order to then reflect on and see, hey, I've seen this before. It all, this is a concept that always comes up. I always have to address this whenever I do a project or this always helps me right here to figure out like whenever I'm like, what's wrong? And then I'm like, oh, if I take a system level perspective, this really helps, right? But anyway, like, so to me, it's this idea of the practice is the stuff that you're engaged in within a lesson, but across lessons, those core concepts are gonna come up. And, you know, for any expert who like, any expert, many of the experts, they learned core concepts like what's a model, not by somebody like telling them, but because they encountered it in many different right, settings, yeah. right? And so, you know, we're kind of fast forwarding that that experience for students where we're giving them in like um, project kind of instances where they're engaged in real practice that has been kind of designed for them to run across a core concept that they need and to repeatedly have those situations in more diverse settings in more difficult settings with more difficult problems and contexts so that they could start to see wow this concept has legs it's useful for me. How, how important is it in the process to be able to, to make what all of what's happening there with the connections explicit to the students? Say, for example, we're talking about like high school students or something. Yeah. Like, does the research tell us anything about whether it helps to say like, this is why this lesson is set up this way because we want you to encounter, you know, this idea in a couple of different places oh. or... Or does it, or does it matter that it's like, you know, I'm most, I'm most reminded of like, uh, uh, when, when, when my, my wife would make, would like hide vegetables and, oh, in fact, you, I think I saw on your blog that you like make, uh, or on your bio or something that you make like, uh, you know, desserts and stuff that have vegetables in it. Same idea, which is like, you never really want to actually say that they're in there, right? Like until they're, they're like maybe 30 or something and they've got all the, the, the nutrients, like, it, it kind of reminds me of that. Like, does it matter that we actually talk about it explicitly, like the design of that lesson, or is it just, or, or is it sufficient to just let them experience it and have it happen, the learning happen naturally? I feel like there's two separate issues in your, in your comment. One is like, should you hide the parsnips in the cupcakes or should you tell people parsnips are great? 
you're going to see them in the cupcake, right? right? right. <laughs> like, should you be upfront about your pedagogy? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I think there are attempts to do that. And I think we rarely convince students mm. because you have a short time to convince them. Yeah. You're going to launch into that pedagogy anyway. And so um, I think of like, um, all that like desirable difficulties research, like uh, Bob Bjork and all that crew, um, where they show students, oh, this study strategy is highly effective, but people don't feel like it is because they feel like it's a struggle. But here's the data. It's really effective, blah, blah, blah. And again and again, students are like, uh-uh, I was in the condition that didn't learn a lot. Yeah. <laughs> even though objectively they learned more, right? But I always think, I always think part of an educator is even if we don't convince them that we want to change the culture. We want to let students know upfront, hey, this idea of a statistical model is damn hard. It is. We know that. There is a reason why you're going to see it again and again, because it takes a long time to learn. And you're going to feel like after we learn it the first time, wow, what a useless concept. And you're going to be right because to use it once, it's pretty useless. But if you want to learn about other statistical models or go on and do cool stuff like AI and all that stuff, having the concept of a statistical model is pretty dang useful, but the payoff is later. So we want we want to convince students of that, even though I must admit we are unsuccessful, right? But I feel like there's a second question of should you name the core concepts? Like, should you tell like a third grader, we're learning about inches versus, you know, feet because things are sometimes at different scales, right? Like, um, versus miles and you know like I I think about that kind of thing a lot um whether you should like really name the thing that you're learning because the idea of measurement you don't need you don't need to say the word measurement right right? you could do lots of inches feet centimeters stuff without that word but I actually fall on the side of I think it's useful and I don't know if you actually got to read some of my older papers but a lot of it is about the power of labels, that an abstract label all of a sudden makes it a thing. Mm -hmm. It didn't exist before, but now it's a thing, right? And I think about, I think about a lot of labels that, I mean, in some ways we were talking about like jargon and academic language before. I think of academia, part of the beauty of it is that we make things that previously didn't exist, right? Like it was there, but nobody noticed it, right? When Angela Duckworth came along and said, I'm gonna call this grit, right? Like she made it a thing, you know? I mean, you know, people will argue and say it was a thing before she called it that. I I really love Angela Duckworth. I I think she's really wonderful. Um, But you know what I mean? Like she, she called it into existence, right? And so I feel like we're trying to do the same thing. There are educators out there that have implicitly been doing practicing connections forever but we want to call it out and say make it a thing you know and we think that could be powerful for students as well that when we show students hey doing a grouping model and a regression model and a logistic model and a model of just probabilities like I think 
I think it's going to be 50%. Those are all models because they generate predictions, right? When we say that, at first, it's totally useless. But across time, they start to have an idea of what a model is that could transcend the specific examples that we got them to think about. I really like this because there are moments in what you were talking about that feel like really emotional moments to me as a like a, as a learner. You know, it's like uh, you have if 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 you are fortunate enough to have been exposed to a lot of experiences where you have just learned things and um, internalized that learning, but maybe don't necessarily have like the vocabulary for it. Um, when you eventually run into some writing that describes it, there's a feel, there's a feeling that to me is like a really emotional feeling. And I could see it like when it happens with my kids where they connect with, oh, that's a thing that I actually understand. And I didn't realize that other people understood it. Um, but I, now I do realize that because somebody had written words about it that are read by like a bunch of different people, right? And now we have this common way to, to discuss it. It feels less lonely now because it's like, uh, like I actually understood it and that person over there also understood it. Right. And then, and the connecting sort of the way that we can now communicate to each other becomes like the language. And like, um, you know, I think every, every book that I've read that I really like really, really, really value has, has accomplished that somehow. It's sort of like, it's, it's described it's given language to something that you knew intuitively and emotionally and, or, or if just maybe I've just felt it, but nobody has ever really, uh, talked about it before. And it is kind of a weird, it's exactly what you said. It's like, in a way that's so powerful that it almost feels like it didn't exist until somebody either wrote about it, or especially if they do like with your framework, you know, and, and, the, and the thing is, it's like, now all of a sudden, there's this uh, story that makes it feel real, right? Like, it doesn't feel so ambiguous and disconnected. It's like this now it has this framework that it can be described. And that just changes everything to me. I don't know. I just feel like it's important to mention because like these experiences for young people, I think they're, you know, they're not these emotionless kinds of things, right? People get really, you know, when my kids are into something, they're into it because they love the thing. Like the learning creates a feeling that they really love. And like, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 feel, I, I just feel like intuitively that that's a part of this sort of equation. Real, real quick to put a lid on it, the, um, the science ed connection, I agree. I concur with um, this sort of, it sounds like we kind of have a, a good foundation for our current science ed, science standards, but how teachers can provide learners with the experiences that they need to kind of develop the ways of thinking and doing that will help them to um, demonstrate proficiency along these standards, that seems a little bit harder. And I had this strong sense from reading your paper and now talking with you sort of solidified it, kind of helped put more of a label on it. It's sort of like shifting the focus from like, I think about like how I've thought about learning an idea as sort of head on, like here's an idea and I'm going to learn it. Where I feel like this connections focus sort of shifts, kind of moves me to the side a little bit and like makes me think about the space between ideas more. And that that's, I think that's not quite it. That feels like I'm missing something, but it's, um, it's a, a really powerful um, way for me to think about this. And I'm thinking about like our, our big model in science ed right now, G, is um, I think that the most kind of useful instructional model has been developed by um, a number of scholars uh, kind of originating at the University of Washington and it's um, ambitious science teaching. And this has four components of planning for engagement with big ideas, eliciting students' ideas, 
designing experience experiences that help students to kind of change their ideas and then um, supporting ongoing changes, pressing for supporting ongoing changes and then pressing for um, evidence-based explanations. They're all sort of, I think, looking at ideas head on and, and sort of treating an idea as one thing that you can learn about rather than having to take that idea and draw connections from it to other, other things, other ideas, um, the world. So anyway, sorry, that was a long way of um, agreeing that we have a lot of work to do kind of along these lines. And I guess- they are like actively the, processing how to on you know, the apply. <laughs> to, the, to the detriment of you two and all of our, our <laughs> listeners. Hey, that, there is a question though, G, and it's why are you doing this work? Um, there's kind of a strong incentive to maybe do work on, you know, the bits of knowledge. How do students yes. learn these particular bits? Or how do they in general learn about bits? And this paper both doesn't do that. And it also has this kind of practical kind of goal of, um, of, of leading to some kind of instructional strategy that teachers could use or use to plan out what they're going to do. Why, what brought you to this work in the short term or the longer term? I feel like this is time for like a, oh, back in the day kind of story. But, you know, I'm a, I'm an immigrant. I'm a child of immigrants. Like, you know, it's the whole, like, you come to this country to have an opportunity to make something of yourself. And, and I remember as like very early on, I felt very strongly that no one could take my education from me. If I know somebody, if I know something no one can take that. They could take your house, they could take your cars, they could take your money, but they can't take what you learn, right? And so I've always from a, you know, from like, you know, junior high, high school, I don't know how I got this idea, whether it's socialization or whatever it was, but um, I just remember feeling very strongly about that. And I think, you know, when, as as I grew up in this world and learned how things don't always work the way you thought it was going to work, that the Supreme Court isn't necessarily a check and balance on the presidency, you know, and, you know, the world disappoints you, right? Like the world has constantly disappointed me. Um, but I have this vision that like, hey, education is still this one thing that nobody can take from you, right? Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, I've, I've always thought that's how you do good. That's how you do good in the world, right? And I'm a shitty person. Let me just tell you that I am all, I have so many scams. I like steal from lost and found. I like park in the most inappropriate places. Like I'm always, I have the worst scams. Like literally my husband has to tell me, gee, that's wrong because that breaks the law. And I'm like, it's only a misdemeanor. It's not even a felony. I got a clean record. I can afford it, right? I mean, like I am a terrible, terrible person, <laughs> like just to be perfectly honest. But- I'm laughing because one... I think it's evident that you're not, but I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> but this one thing I have going for me <laughs> that I think I could do good in the world by like literally changing what people know and so I'm always out there trying to overturn the Stanfords of the world, right? Like I'm always out there hoping to rally the, you know, community college and the students who've been written off from the mathematics pipeline. And I'm like, if you want to beat Stanford or, you know, 
put in your placeholder for elite student, right? right? If you want to beat them, you can't beat them in the bits game because they mm. are years ahead of you. You got to think different, right? And so for me, it really is a pressure tested idea of if you want to not mess around with what everybody else is doing, right? What would you do? And when you ask that question, you come up with kind of batshit crazy things, right? Um, but we really think that's where the innovation lies. And here's one thing I'll say, ed tech is all about bits. It's like 100% bits, right? Like, yeah, your they, paper kind of called out the cognitive tutor of literature. <laughs> and we love cognitive tutor. We love Candace Steele. We love all these, these are our people, you know? But at the same time, they do bits because bits is easy and it fits into everybody's version of the world. But we feel like, look, when you're dealing with the students who have been cut off from all of that, they are bits to death and it doesn't work. So why do we think another five years of bits is going to help? Why not try something really radically different? And why not build it from first principles? Not what we can do because it's easy, but what we should do, right? Because it might be effective. Right. Yeah, they, they do strike me as really practical lessons, you know, like learning how to learn, like is, is a, is a really practical, uh, practical thing. It, you know, I, I understand that we are, we are using terminology and things to describe it that maybe don't always feel, you know, they feel, uh, you know, it's a different kind of vocabulary, but it's describing something that I just feel like is such an accessible idea. Like, like all it would take is for somebody to, to, to reflect on how, you know, on something that they are really passionate about and good at and and sort of relive and deconstruct the story of how they got there. They'll, I just feel like they'll find this there. You know, they'll find some disconnect, some experience that, on paper, you know, if we don't make the connection explicit, is like feels like it's disconnected, but in fact was this like training ground for a, uh, you know, for a different, uh, you know, for for some concept that they eventually became good at. Uh, and I think that's what I really like about this the most is like, I think it's like, you can, uh, this is something you talk about with, with anybody, because I think human beings, like they love things and then they get, they get good at things that they love. Right. Because they kind of do it over and over again. And they, then they, they do it not only at work, but then at home. And, and that's like this crossing over, I don't know. It's like learning, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, because of the book that we wrote, we, we talk about R and learning how to code a lot. And, um, I don't think it is an accident that, that so many people in the R community and probably also, you know, other coding communities um, have a day job where they code and then they've got like these side projects, right? Where they're just doing different, they're writing code for different purposes. They're applying it in different areas. Um, I, I really think there is this like natural, the, the seeking of the connection energy. across street. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the uh, you know, to use, you know, to, to, to use the buzzword about it, but like, it it it, def, it defies. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it def, eventually, if you love it enough, it defies industry, right? It defies like boundaries. It defies like because you're just like, well, it's not. I just love to code, and if I can make, if I can earn money by coding, then that then that's really great. But like, uh, you know, I also code to not. I don't need to make money for some of these other projects that I code for. It's just there's something about coding that scratches an itch 
Um, and that, that's just one example, but I think like everybody has a story like this where it's like, this is a thing that I'm good at. And I just, I feel like if that story were deconstructed and we sort of reflected deeply on it, what we would find is a bunch of disparate kinds of experiences that sort of like layered on to build, to build the thing. This all feels very like, like it's not just an academic thing. But I, at the same time, I feel like the, co the people who are coding and talking about it on Twitter, they're a rarefied group that somehow accidentally found themselves there. Yeah, yeah. But, our, but our education system is not producing those people by design. And I think that's the big problem that we see. So many people are cut off from that future and we're asking why, yeah. right? And so many people that you talk to, like, you know, I do a lot of my research in math education. And when I tell people at like a party that, like so many people are like, oh my God, I hated statistics. I hated math. They yeah. don't have these stories of interesting connections that they made right, in math. Right, right. Like right, right. no one's like, oh gosh, I remember that day when, you know, I was factoring polynomials and it just hit me. It was just like division, you know, like nobody's saying that. To <laughs> True. And I find that so sad. Yeah, yeah. Just, I, I thought it was interesting too, that your work is in, in, uh, the work we read, um, both the Ed Psych Review paper and um, the paper describing uh, the wonderful um, textbook, uh, better textbook, better book. Oh, oh um, the textbook, you can find it at coursekata.org, right? A plug. Yeah. Um, and, but we call our model of doing research the better book model. So our book is mediocre. Let me promise you that. <laughs> our book is the seems really mediocre good. book. <laughs> You'll yeah, like I, I look at it, it didn't seem like that to me. It seemed good. Yeah, it's but, really, I mean, well, organized I mean, well around we these core ideas. We see that because every, every learning resource is mediocre, but we think it could improve based on research, based on data from student learning, right? So to us, this textbook, it's an interactive textbook that you um, use in an LMS. So even though you could preview it at coursekata.org, K-A-T-A, -A, um, what's important about this textbook is that you, what you see is actually constantly being slightly improved, hmm. ever so slightly. And that's what kata means. Kata means improvement routine. So we have a routine of doing things like, for example, A-B tests. We have literally videos of me that um, only 20% of students watch, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> but we could do A-B tests to see if one video is better than another video, right? Um, for example, we have a Khan Academy style version of the video where you don't see me and you just see writing appear up in air, right? But we also have the same video, same content, but see me in the video. And one of the things we found in our early A-B tests was that even though neither of these affected students' um, multiple choice question answering later on, students who watched the video with a person in it tended to watch the next video or mm. said they'd be more likely to watch the next video yeah. if that opportunity arose, right? And so we pulled a lever and now, all the videos in the textbook have a person, yeah. right? And we're going to write a paper. We've been writing that manuscript for a while, but you know, 
you know how that publishing process goes. We might publish that paper and whoop-de-doo, like a hundred people will read it if we're lucky, right? And then no teacher would use it, right? No community college or high school statistics teacher is going to look up the video and put it in their thing and they're not going to do that, right? But because our research is done on the textbook, every person, every instructor, every student who picks up our textbook Um, from here on out has the insights because the insights are in the textbook. I get where you're going with this now. Okay. Yeah. So like, so the innovation there is that the, uh, the product of the research is not necessarily like the paper that writes about it. It is the instructional uh, material itself. That's right. We're trying to make research make an impact on the, on the stuff that actually faces teachers and students. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Gee, I, I'm making a connection here. Did I just see a video of you today at the National Data Science oh. for Everyone event? Yes. <laughs> Teach in this very studio <laughs> called my home office. <laughs> it was great. It was so impressive. I um, Ryan, this is the Data Science for Everyone. I think I chatted about it in, the, yeah. in our Slack group, but um, it's a conference and um, she and her group uh, were highlighted as one of the kind of commitment makers to support data science for everyone. Nice. I had no idea that was you. It <laughs> 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 was great. Oh, how funny. Um, known for my terribly unwatchable <laughs> statistics videos. That, yeah, that yeah, anyway, not um, not, not, not according to the uh, the revenue stream that keeps on trickling through off right. from the uh, the G Sun fake Twitter account. Educare.com. Sorry, I keep on coming back to science ed, which I know is just for me here, and um, maybe a few of the folks listening to the pod. But um, in science ed, open science ed, I think is is a really it's different in, in core ways. Um, it's not really um, as kind of instrumented for lack of a better term and doesn't i think afford is kind of um like uh as it's built it doesn't afford data collection in the ways that uh uh that your work does but they're really marrying like the best scholars in science education with the best curriculum developers and educators who are ready to pilot these materials to generate in uh fully creative common licensed curriculum with associated assessments and a PD kind of built around it. And I, I think it's just the most promising work in science ed right now, maybe yeah. following this to, second most promising thing, which was the science, the, the new standards themselves. Yeah. To yeah us, sorry, I mean, we, we instantiate the better book model in our technology platform in a very particular way, but, you know, as academics, we're always trying to like breathe things into existence. Right. And so our, the core of our better book model is that, Hey, anybody could do this. Everybody, we want everybody to be dancing along, right? Um, this idea of teachers, researchers, and developers working together to improve a set of freely available instructional materials that improve based on actual data rather than just our intuitions, you know? Well, can't wait to read that paper when uh, when it comes out or a preprint of it or yeah, yeah same. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send it to I'll I'll send it to you guys. Um, it just Please. came uh, it came out I think in 2020 in um, the Teachers College Record, which is oh, I, wow. it's a little bit ironic because it's like um, it's all about like making things 
like free and available and it's behind a paywall. <laughs> oh yeah. We have to do a we have to do a paywall episode one day. This is something we Josh and we I do. talk about all the time. <laughs> that, that is one like, of the I most important like journals in education. And it's it's so hard to access articles in it. Um even it's with so library hard. access it's hard sometimes. Yeah. It's a wonderful journal. Like they publish some of the most critical and just leading scholarship in education. And it's yeah, I don't know. They gotta change that. I mean we all have to. But yeah, another pod, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, so we, uh, we're we about out of time, but I wanted to touch on maybe two more things to, to close up. Uh, and we'll do them um, just kind of, uh, you know, just sort of lightning round style things, right? Uh, the first okay. one is, if I were, uh, if I were a, a school principal and I, and I read your research paper and I was like, this is uh, great, I want to use this. Like, I want to go into my school tomorrow, I'll put this into practice, even if in some small way, what is like my first next step? I mean, to us, when we were embarking on this, that's why we put out our statistics paper at the same time, because we felt like it would be helpful for people to have a real example of it being done in a real class that people actually teach, right? So an easy thing that they could do is if they teach a statistics class somewhere in their high school, contact us, right? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. you know, you could literally use our materials, right? So that's definitely like, that's like low hanging fruit. But let's say you want to apply it to physics or uh, algebra two or whatever it is, right? Um, I think the first thing you want to start off with is identifying your core concepts. And what's great about things like the NGSS framework and Common Core is that they've done some of that work for you. There is real meat to those yeah. core concepts that they've identified. But at the same time, identifying those core concepts are not enough. And often people just tell students the core concept. Yes. But I think then it becomes about, well, how can we innovate and test and try to create lessons to see if we could get students to focus the connections, practice making them, and then how do we provide those opportunities repeatedly through the curriculum? Because yeah. we know it's not gonna happen in one day. It's gonna happen over weeks because right. that's how you learn hard things. You learn it over weeks, months, years, right? And so it could be like the idea of a function Right? Function is such an important idea. Nobody understands what that is. Everybody, like literally, I just thought it was like f of x. You want right. me to write f of x? Right. All right. All right. Okay, I did it. Right. And then it's like just basic algebra, right? <laughs> like that's how I interpreted function, right? Yeah. Because nobody, nobody helped me figure out why is that a concept? Yeah. Right. But we need to design assessments where it would matter that you understood what a function mm -hmm. was. And if you don't have that kind of assessment, then maybe it's not an important concept. Mm. I would actually argue probably the other way. Maybe you suck at making assessments, but <laughs> that's, a, that's another thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, last question is, uh, so we, for, this is a question that we have for guests. It's actually two questions, but guests pick one. And, and uh, it is uh, either, what is something that you did uh, in the last couple of, weeks at work that you enjoyed, but you don't think you're that good at, or the inverse of that? What is something that you did that you didn't enjoy, but sadly, you're, you're pretty good at it? Oh, uh, inventing stats. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing it because there's so much research that shows how students 
can't understand basic statistics concepts such as p-value and null hypothesis testing confidence. I mean, name and almost any concept in statistics. Yeah. And there's research that shows students don't understand it, right? Yeah. So I love making up statistics that circumvent those misconceptions by being the thing that people accidentally think that this is. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Please. So people often think of p-value in totally the wrong way. And what you'll ask people is, uh, the way you elicit this misconception is by saying, hey, um, you let's say I did a study, p equals 0.05. If I redid this study, what's the chance that it would replicate, right? And most popular answer is 95%, one minus P, right? And what people don't understand is that basically everything in a p-value assumes that there is no effect in the world, right? Um, but usually for uh, understanding replication, um, you would wanna posit that some, some effect exists in the world and it could be zero, but it doesn't have to be zero. And so you would want to assume something in order to calculate that. And this is something we call post hoc power, right? Often when you assume that the effect in the world is the same as what you saw in your sample. And so Jim Stigler and I, and um, we conned Stacy um, Shaw into uh, being on this paper with us. Um, mostly because she's better at stats than we were. We're like, we need somebody to rubber stamp it. Um, we invented this thing called uh, worst case replication probability, <laughs> which is exactly what you think it is. It's in the worst case. Yes. What's the likelihood that your experiment will replicate? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, this is really great. So it's like people misinterpret p-values all the time. So you might as well just name the thing that that is that like that they misinterpret. That way, and like come they up can, with a statistic yeah, that actually right. calculates the thing they actually want. Right. 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 The reason why nobody understands p-value is because nobody needs it. They're like, I never wanted this concept. So you're trying to teach it to me, and I feel like I still don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> And you tell me it's on the test, I still don't feel like I need it, right? Yeah. But this is a this is a concept that people feel like they need. Like, oh, if I do this study again, will I get the same results, right? right? And we're like, why not invent that statistic, right? It's, it's the difference between trying to engineer people and affect their psychology and trying to engineer the world. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. How, can you ballpark how many, like, how often does this phenomenon like come up? Like how many opportunities have you had to be like, this is done wrong so many times you might as well just name the thing that people are actually doing? I am not a statistician. I should say that upfront, lest somebody accidentally mistakes me for one. Um, I am always making up statistics that I think should exist <laughs> yeah. and nobody is having it. Nobody <laughs> wants it. There's no market for it. <laughs> Nobody is interested. <laughs> and I feel like it's so terrible that I love to do it because I don't have the bona fides or I'm also trying to invent things that real statisticians really just don't feel like we need because they feel like, no, all of those things already exist. You should just do a better job teaching them. And I sit at the junction trying to teach these things to students and I'm yeah. like, okay, I'm starting to give up on whether I could actually teach it to them. 
So maybe we should change the stuff we're trying to teach them, you know? Well, be sure to like uh, make a record of your of your findings so that like a hundred years from now, when these are like straight up like taught in every statistics book, you, your story can be told because that's a... Uh, that seems pretty important. <laughs> oh no, that's so true. And I'm I'm actually going to clean up this document and post it on one of these like preprint things because I do feel like the gatekeepers are all statisticians and they feel like, look, we don't need this statistic yeah. because it's redundant. And we're like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's easier to understand. I think yeah, I think yeah. it's really cool too. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, uh, it, it, there is some precedent in my little neck of the woods in science ed where um, Rich Lair and Leona Schauble wrote a lot about how kids learning statistics, like at the like upper elementary levels, can benefit from inventing like measures of spread. So like mm -hmm. standard deviation, like who's going to invent that? I mean, it's kind of hard to invent that, at least at that age. But kids can come up with lots of especially visual ways of summarizing how spread out data points and some distribution are and they can name those different things yeah. and that can be really powerful for them to have a kind of um tool in their classroom sorry aside yeah. um I, I love the i love the idea though in professional practice i i in the specific example you gave it's brilliant and i uh, look forward to reading more of um she's um actually useful statistics that um <laughs> that's the name there you go that's the book <laughs> actually useful statistics. Yes. oh my gosh yeah and then when we invented this statistic we were so excited and then um i told some grad students about it and i think the the statistic has it's called we called it like worst case replication probability and i was like you know It'd be so great if I could get it to be WTF somehow. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> like totally. somehow I could get the acronym to work. So I yeah. literally worked on that for like a month, like trying every <laughs> permutation combination. And I was like, oh, wouldn't that be so awesome? Like WTF as recommended by yes. Sun et al. There 2020. You go. And I could be as famous as Cohen's D, you know? Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> For WTF, you know? For sure. <laughs> totally. There's, there's lots of time, G. I'm excited by, yeah, the next steps in your, in this. Yes. And if you guys think of a statistic that we could name WTF, oh, then you, definitely yeah. write it up. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, let's, let's, let, let, yeah, let's let that idea cook because it, it's out there somewhere. <laughs> we just, we got to manifest it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there's a lot of things like F statistic and like, you know, there's a lot yeah, of things. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the weighted tail frequency. Maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to write that down. I'm yeah, write it down. That's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> weighted tail frequency. Um, kind of relates to a p-value, actually. Weighted tail frequency. I know, when it's got, not like, that bad. Yeah, it really is yeah. not. I'm putting it in uh, There you go. Well, gee, this has uh, gee, been. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Thanks, Ryan. Oh, I was just gonna say it's been a, it's been great. Yeah. I've, yeah. Uh, perfect guest for the pod. A great compliment to the past guests we've had too. Yeah, this oh, is really. I been... loved. I loved listening to your past episodes too. I like. I wanted to talk about that one Tony Brike book that you guys were talking about oh, in yeah. a previous pod. Um, was it called like learning to improve? Learning I to think. improve. Yeah. Yeah, like because you know we are all about that. Like that is the idea of that inspired better book yeah or you know you know all those people that he cites you know gruno and all those guys like were really influenced by all their thinking so oh god they had talk about making connections yeah we should definitely we should have you back on and maybe we can we can t tackle that as a topic because i think there yeah that would be part really two yeah they're part two totally yeah.
he'll be like a yearly guest for us. I think he'll yes. be our first regular. <laughs> I love this. I'm Seriously. like, hell, two smart people in the world are like being forced to read my papers. Good job. <laughs> it was a great gift in that, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, it's going to come up in my science teaching methods class this fall. Woohoo! Nice. I can zoom in for a second. Oh, I don't know if your class is back in person. <laughs> yeah, we're figuring that out. Yeah, that was yeah. the wonderful thing about this year. It was like, you know, as, as terrible as, as it was, there were so many moments where it's like, oh, you could have this guest speaker just pop in. Yeah. Like, Hi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that'd be amazing. Yeah, for sure. All right, Dee. So where can the listeners find you online and follow your work? You could uh, follow me on Twitter, CogSciMom. Don't follow the fake G. Yeah, all the fake one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll add the link to the fake one in the show notes. I know, we should. <laughs> uh, you could also um, find me at coursekata.org. And I, maybe I could also put a link to our summer study groups. Like if you're a teacher out there who wants to learn about data science, we have these things called summer study groups where teachers who are interested in data science education, but don't know that much about data science, Jupyter Notebooks, our programming, they could just join us for a two week, uh, six session um, little, little study group where they are gonna be with other teachers who are using our textbook, using Jupyter Notebooks, looking at cool data, making visualizations, but going through the process of making connections just like their students would. That sounds awesome. We will definitely include that in the, uh, yeah, in the notes. What yeah, about you, Josh? What would be interested already? Oh, sorry, Ryan. No, I, just gonna... found, I can be yeah. found at, uh, at J Rosenberg 6432. I have no fake account to, uh, add. yes, and, yes, um... exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm, I'm cooking it up right now. <laughs> um, I'm at, at J Rosenberg 6432 on Twitter. Although like, I think back in one of our first few episodes, I'm back on a social media break for a bit. Okay. Um, that sounds which healthy. Sounds really high and mighty, but I'll be back in about forty-eight hours, probably. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> they don't. Yeah, they don't last yeah. that long. Come back free. to the dark side. <laughs> no. That's right. <laughs> All right, I am uh, Rye underscore Estreato on Twitter and Instagram, and then uh, my website is ryanestreato.com. G, you have to come back. It was super fun talking to you guys. I feel like we've known each other forever. <laughs> like, oh, totally. so good to totally. see you guys. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like I'm happy to chat. Um, I always joke that I'm like the worst person for my team to send on these things because I'm I'm apt to like run the mouth and say a lot of inappropriate <laughs> things. It's like I am known for like standing up in meetings and just being like, hey, <laughs> you know? um, I think I think you're the best person, G. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>